How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, the truth will set you free. Unfortunately, we're getting into another election cycle, and it is a stark reminder of how very little we as a nation agree on. But I think that might be something that we could all finally agree on. The truth will set you free. We say things like, knowledge is power, and therefore knowledge, knowing, is freeing. The truth will set you free. Those words are even etched on the lobby wall at the CIA headquarters. That that phrase, the truth will set you free, is the official model for some like 30 universities around the world. I think it's something we can all get behind. The truth will set you free. In fact, Those might be, especially in our American context and culture, those might be two of the most cherished ideas, cherished words that we have, truth and freedom. At the same time, are there any more controversial words and concepts in our culture than those two? Truth and freedom. Well, what truth are you talking about? Are you talking about a cultural truth or an educational truth or a religious truth or a moral truth or a political truth or your truth or my truth or a universal truth? Do those things even exist anymore? And what does it mean this truth will set you free? Free from what? Free to do what? Because being set free implies something pretty serious, doesn't it? If someone comes to you and makes the promise, hey, I can set you free, well, they're telling you at that specific moment, you're not. In some way, in some shape or form, you are in bondage. You are enslaved to someone or something, and no one likes that. No one wants to be that. No one is ready or willing to admit that. Such was the case for this group of Jewish people who John tells us believed in Jesus. Everything that he had been saying to them up to this point in John chapter 8. And if you got some time later this afternoon, I would encourage you to read the rest of John chapter 8. It's a fascinating chapter where Jesus actually says some extremely difficult and challenging things to this group of people. He says things like, you know what? You guys are of this world, but I'm not. Well, okay, Jesus, if you're not from this world, then where else could you possibly be from? Jesus says, I am going away, and where I am going, you cannot come. 
And John actually kind of, by inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a little insight. And the people were thinking to themselves, what is he going to do? Where is he going that we can't follow? Is he going to kill himself? That's what they thought. And then Jesus drops this hammer on them. He says, if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, and who Jesus said he was in John chapter 8 and even before that and throughout the rest of the Gospels is, I am the one true Son of God the Father here on his behalf to win you back from sin and death. I have come to accomplish your salvation. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. And here he tells them, if you don't believe that, you will die in your sins. That's what he tells them. Talk about a wonderful way to win over a crowd, right? And yet, despite all of those difficult teachings, in the verse right before our text begins, so John chapter 8, verse 30, John says this, Even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. To say the least, they were confused. Not exactly sure what Jesus is talking about or what he means by all of this. And yet, despite all of that, they were starting to trust Jesus. That is, until Jesus mentioned this word, this concept of freedom. We are Abraham's descendants, Jesus. And we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Whoa, 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 Jesus. I mean, I, I'm fine going along with some of the stuff I don't fully understand, but this I get. You're telling us that we are an enslaved people, but we have never been slaves to anyone. We are descendants of Abraham. Now, just giving a cursory glance to the Old Testament will tell you that either these Jewish people were flat out lying or they didn't know their own history very well. Because if you go back, you'll see in the Old Testament, this is pretty much the way life went for the Old Testament Israelites. They were an enslaved people. It started off in the book of Exodus with the nation of Egypt. And a couple hundred years later, after they finally make it out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, well, then the Assyrians come in 722 B.C. They take apart the ten northern kingdoms and, and capture a bunch of the Israelites and take them off into slavery, in, into captivity. And then about 150 years later, the Babylonians came and took out the, the bottom two, the, the southern kingdoms, destroy the temple, take all of the best and brightest of those Israelites, ship them off into slavery, and then after that it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and now finally here as Jesus is speaking with them, it's the Romans. If you go back through the history of Israel, at this point when Jesus is having this conversation, the Jewish people have been enslaved in one way, shape, or form for the better part of the last 800 years. You've never been a slave to anyone? But you see, Jesus wasn't talking about a, a political slavery or even a national slavery. And these Jewish people understood that. They knew what Jesus was talking about. They show that in the, the reference that they make to being descendants of Abraham. 
And why did they take so much pride in their connection to Abraham? Because that's how they thought they were going to be found righteous before God. As long as they had some sort of lineage, some sort of bloodline connection to Abraham, that's all we need to get into eternal life. This deep longing to be right, to be found righteous, is something that lies deep within all of us. And maybe you're sitting there, somebody brought you here this morning, you don't really want to be here, and you're thinking to yourself, preacher, I'm not a religious person. I don't care about being righteous. I bet you do. You see, even non-religious people care about being righteous. You, you might not connect it to a church. You, you clearly don't connect it with any sort of religion. Maybe you don't even connect it with any sort of God. But this longing and desire to be right in the eyes of the world, to be found righteous among your peers and in your community, is something that, sorry, all of us are just born with. It's this innate trait that we want to justify ourselves and be righteous among people. And so how do you show that? How do you do that? Well, you, 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 you make sure that you eat the cleanest diet and that you post all of your workouts online and, and you brag to your friends about how you have the smallest carbon footprint of anybody you know and how amazing and what amazing kind of grade your company gets for recycling and all the charities that you contribute to and all the causes that you fight for. Why do you do these things? Well, because they're right. Yes, in your eyes, maybe they are. But it's not just because they're right. It's because it makes you look right. And that's what we all want. Now, I'm not throwing you under the bus. We religious folk, we do this too. We just do it for different reasons. We don't do it for good karma or to be found on the right side of history. We do it because deep down we think that if we do a bunch of good stuff, well, then God's going to owe us. I'm not saying that's right. It isn't. But this is how we operate Till our dying day, we still fight against this temptation that in order to be found right in the eyes of our God, we have to do something. We have to contribute something. And so whether you are irreligious or you are religious to the core, all of us are bound in this slavery of trying to make ourselves righteous. And that is the exact opposite of freedom. And here's why. Because there is no finish line on the journey to make yourself righteous. And so none of those things you do in an effort to make yourself right in the eyes of the world or right with God are ever going to be enough. Have I done enough? Have I given enough? Have I given up enough? Have I helped enough? Have I been righteous enough to be confident that the world will remember me well? That God will smile upon me? You'll never get there. You might have moments. You might have certain days. Even maybe a couple of days stretched together where you're pretty happy with your standing, but... 
I can tell you because I've seen this, and maybe you have too, all of that changes as death draws closer. And so why don't we honestly address it now? This was Martin Luther's struggle. Throughout the early years of his life, he actually admitted to hating God. He wasn't an atheist. He wasn't an agnostic. He was still a believer, but he hated the God he believed in. And the reason for that was, is because despite doing everything better than anyone else was, despite doing everything that his church told him to do in order to feel right with God, he never got there. He never felt righteous enough. His soul, his heart, his conscience was never satisfied, and it was not from a lack of trying. He actually would beat himself, whip himself, convincing himself that the more he punished himself, the less likely God would add to it. But none of it ever got him to that finish line. None of it ever got him to the top rung of that ladder, and so he concluded the only reason for that could possibly be that as the higher I climb, the closer I get, like an extension ladder, God just keeps raising it higher and higher, and Luther hated him for it. And I'd be willing to bet that at least some of you know exactly what that feels like. Doing good things might make you feel good, but that feeling doesn't last. Especially when you realize that really all you've done is raised your own bar for what it takes for you to consider yourself to be righteous. Where the next righteous thing you do has to be bigger, has to be better, has to be more righteous than the last. You're no closer to becoming righteous than you were yesterday, than you were 20 years ago. And if you've ever wondered why that is, well, Jesus explains it to you this morning in our gospel. He said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There it is. He says, picture it like this. Consider if the righteous stuff that you and I do is like putting a, a deposit into our spiritual account. Help a nice old lady across the street, there's five righteous points. Uh, go and help somebody do some grocery shopping, there's ten uh, spiritual points. Whatever it is, you, you picture it like that, and we do. I'm filling up my spiritual righteousness account. Okay, continue with that thought in your mind, if you will. Here's the problem. Every time that you sin, and that's the Bible's way of describing, anytime you think or say or do something that is against, that is contrary to the law that God has given, anytime you think or say or do something that harms your neighbor, someone near to you, whether you think it's justified or not, God says it's like making a withdrawal from that account. And here's the problem. You withdraw way more than you'll ever deposit. Not just because you do more sin than you do good, but because Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It's not just a periodic part of the low points in your life. It's who we are. 
So that's why we'll never reach the top of this self-righteous ladder. That's why your heart, your conscience will never allow you to say to yourself, I made it. This is why so many people get burned out with church. Because church tells them, like they told Luther, here's all the stuff you got to do to make yourself righteous. This is why people get burned out with life. Because they just can't do it anymore. This is why people get burned out with God. Who can keep that up forever? And because we are slaves to sin, well, Jesus says a slave has no permanent place in the family. You see, Jesus says, in other words, if the goal is to make ourselves righteous enough to earn God's favor, to get close to God, to be a part of God's family, it'll never happen if you're a slave. And regardless of how many sins you have or I have, even if we've only committed one little white lie in our lives, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and that is what we are. This is the freedom, however, that Jesus speaks of. This is the freedom that we try, that we so desperately want to earn but never will. This is the freedom that Jesus came to win, to set you free from the slavery to sin, to set you free from the impossible burden of having to make yourself righteous. You see, Luther had spent the early part of his life looking inside himself to find that righteousness. The church said, go and do this, and you'll feel good about it, and you'll be on your way to being righteous. And Luther said, okay, I will, but he never was. He kept trying to convince himself, if I can just, if only I, and he kept looking deeper and deeper within himself until, and this is a big part of the Reformation, he finally came to this conclusion Righteousness will never be found within myself. And so this two-word motto of the Reformation became that righteousness always and only can be found extra nos. They used the Latin. And those Latin words, extra nos, mean outside of yourself. How can I be found righteous in the sight of God? If it doesn't come from within me, then it must come from outside myself. If it isn't something I can produce, then it has to be something someone else has to produce for me. If it isn't something I can declare about myself, I made myself righteous, then righteousness is that which only God himself can declare. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he's done. Jesus said, Now a slave has no place, permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son, the Son of God, if Jesus Christ sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from your guilt free from condemnation, free from the fear of death and judgment because the judge of heaven and earth has already declared you to be innocent and free. Jesus gives his life. 
to pay back and wipe out all of your sinful debt, to cancel your morally bankrupt status. And that's not enough. He doesn't just empty you. He doesn't just wipe away your sins. He turns around then and He fills up your spiritual account with His righteousness, with His perfect life, with His innocent suffering and death. And He credits it all to you. You know, I I read a lot of articles this time of year around Reformation and reading different takes on it and ways that people can describe it. Essentially, how do you answer the question to someone? And and maybe today, maybe you're here today and you have the question, or maybe you got into the conversation with somebody saying, Sunday is Reformation Sunday. And they said, what in the world is Reformation Sunday? And how do you answer it? I like to read these articles and hear how people answer that question. And I think the most common one, probably a lot of you know, well, it's about the three solas, right? Sola is the Latin word for alone. We sang our opening hymn about that grace alone and faith alone and Scripture alone, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is found in Scripture alone. And that's important because the church in Luther's day, they had all of those solas, they had, or they had all of those concepts, grace and faith and scripture, but none of them were alone. It was always you're saved by grace plus your charitable life. You're saved by faith plus all of the good meritorious works that you can muster up. It is found in scripture alone plus, not alone, plus all of the traditions and the writings of of the ancient church. And the Lutheran Reformation said no. No. It is found in those three things alone. We are saved by grace apart from any meritorious works that we could do. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not because we can add something to that faith. We are saved because all of this is proclaimed to us, declared to us in Scripture alone, not in some man-made teachings or laws. Some others would describe it as the the Reformation is all about coming up with a clear distinction between law and gospel. And that's a good one too. It reminds us that in the Bible, God always has two words to say. The law and the gospel. Sometimes we call them the bad news and the good news. The law is what God lays out as his expectations and demands for those who call themselves his people. And then to follow that, the law also says if you don't do that, here's the threat that comes with it death. But the gospel is the second word that God speaks, and the gospel is that message of good news that Jesus Christ has kept God's law perfectly in your place, and that he gave that perfectly righteous and innocent and holy life as a a sacrifice for your sins and mine, and now his righteousness is yours, and his righteousness is mine, and we stand before God holy and righteous and innocent, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And here's the challenge. You have to keep those two words distinct and separate. You can't mash them together and try and make one word out of it. You can't try and go soft on one and and stronger on the other. You can't favor one at the expense of the other. You have to say them both, and you have to let the law come and deliver its crushing blows with all of its severity, leaving ourselves hopeless when it comes to our own righteousness so that the gospel can come in and tell you all is done. 
Jesus has done it all. You are righteous. You are saved. A third one would be, and this is one that I just found this week, and I wanted to share it with you guys, especially if Lutheranism is something new to you or you've never really had kind of a simple way to summarize the Reformation for you. I read this week an article, and it talked about this. The summary of the Reformation was four words. Oh, yeah, Jesus died. That was it. And when I read it, I thought, well, that doesn't say enough. But it actually does. The author's point was this. If God went through the trouble of becoming a man and was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted by the devil, and if he experienced the weakness and sorrow of humanity and took upon himself our sin and suffered the wrath of God that you and I deserve, dying in agony, abandoned and naked, hanging on a cross, only to be laid in, a, in the ground, if God did all of that, well then maybe, just maybe, that should be reflected in everything we say and do as Lutherans. You see, it stops us from falling into the temptation of thinking that we have to contribute something or that we have to perform for God in order for Him to love and accept us. You remember, oh yeah, Jesus died. It is finished. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus or when your faith is weak. And we start to wonder if we still truly believe or, or that we, what are we going to do to believe even more? And we start to look like Luther did inside ourselves and, and ask ourselves and try to find this, do we have to make some sort of decision? Do we have to try harder? Do we have to believe more? And then you remember, oh yeah, Jesus died. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. That everything about our salvation from beginning to end is Christ for us. Whatever teaching or practice we have in the church, it has to run through this cruncher. The death of Jesus. That is the message of the Reformation. The simple teaching of Scripture Luther said it this way, the cross alone is our theology. In other words, oh yeah, Jesus died. That is all, really, that we need to know. It tells us about ourselves, that we are sinners who are unable to save ourselves our salvation requires the very blood of God, but it also tells us everything we need to know about our God. Oh yeah, Jesus died. God would not leave us in our sin, in our trouble, in our death, or in our graves. No, he came to rescue and deliver us to take away our sins, to bind up the devil, to break open our grave, so that any and every time the devil comes to you to trouble you, any time that your guilt uh, struggles or, or, or your guilt wants to strangle you over your sin or with your utter lack of goodness, remember, Jesus died. 
And anytime the troubles of this world pile up like a mountain and threaten to topple over your head and crush you, you say, oh yeah, Jesus died. And when the darkness of your own grave looms and the death, your death, draws near, remember, Jesus died. Jesus died, and there is now no sin that God has not forgiven. Jesus died, and God has no anger left for you. Jesus died, and the gates of hell are slammed shut, and the, the gates of heaven are flung wide open. Jesus died, and you are set free. And the truth is that you have nothing to fear. Jesus died. God's Son died, and you are now God's Son. Perfect and holy, who has a place in God's family forever. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died. Amen.